Radio Derb is on the air. Greetings, listeners, and apologies for our absence from the airwaves, or cable waves, whatever, last week. That was the result of a minor medical emergency, happily resolved earlier this week by the skill and scalpel of a local surgeon. Thank you, sir. I shall supply details of the event in my January diary, upcoming in a day or two. So, this is your post-operatively genial host, John Derbyshire, with a brief survey of the news. What was happening while I was under the knife there? What was happening? Wars and rumours of wars. The war we're all thinking about is that war between, as I noted last April, the world's two most corrupt white nations. How's it going? It's hard to get a clear picture. The media are all cheering for plucky little Ukraine. That's understandable. It was their country that got invaded, and they are way smaller than Russia. So... Ukraine's the underdog here. OK, OK, Afghanistan and Iraq got invaded by the USA, which is way bigger than they are. Sure, but Afghanistan had harboured terrorists who'd committed a gross atrocity against our homeland. Iraq had two charges against it, supporting those same terrorists and developing weapons of mass destruction. It's turned out those charges were fabricated. But they were plausible at the time, and 9-11 had put us in a vengeful mood. Russia hasn't suffered a 9-11. Certainly not one plotted by people Ukraine was hospitable to. Far from covertly developing nukes, Ukraine leads the list and it's a very short list, of nations that voluntarily gave up their nukes. So, yeah, I'm okay with Ukraine as the underdog here. However, I am not temperamentally susceptible to wishful thinking. I said at the outset that I didn't think Ukraine stood much chance against Russia, and that's still the way it looks to me. We've all heard the old quip that Russia is never as strong as she looks. Russia is never as weak as she looks. Sure, they screwed up the initial operation and came out looking weak. Russia's way bigger than Ukraine, though, with far more resources. The Russians are collectively dumb, but they are dogged. They can just keep pounding away until there's nothing left of Ukraine but rubble, with the survivors staggering around singing, Nobody knows the rubble I've seen. Sorry, sorry. Military analysts see this war in phases. Phase one was the all-out invasion that started a year ago, but ended floundering in the spring mud. 
Phase 2, which we're still in, is the war of attrition. Skirmishing on the front lines for small advantages, while pounding Ukrainian infrastructure with missiles. That could just continue to the total rubble scenario. Or there could be an attempt at a big, decisive battle. That attempt would most likely be Russia's, and there are signs they're gearing up for it, for a major assault this spring. Putin has just appointed a new supreme commander. He's announced new mobilisation, and production of tanks, missiles and ammunition is being stepped up. All that sounds a tad less scary if you notice that Putin's new commander is the same guy that was in charge of the invasion fiasco a year ago. That it's doubtful the newly mobilised troops can be in fighting shape by spring and that Russian industrial production has never won any prizes. Much of the equipment they used to push back Germany in World War II was shipped to them by America and Britain with the Arctic convoys. You're welcome. So, yeah, a lot of unknowns here. That includes some of what you might call deep unknowns. Things we don't know about how a major battle goes ahead and how troops perform in a 2023 technological environment under the latest advances in drones, satellite surveillance, missile targeting, battlefield management and so on. Tech changes very fast nowadays. Not only is this not your father's war, it's not even your older brother's war. That's all very interesting in an abstract war game theoretical way. But what's our interest here? What path should our federal government be following in furtherance of the job that we've hired them to do? Which is to preserve and advance the prosperity and security of us in our homeland. What are they actually doing? Don't ask. Here we are in the realm of strategy, of managing our relations with other countries so as to minimise threats to our territory and our commerce. In this realm, our leaders have, for more than 30 years now, practised policies of unrelieved stupidity. You don't have to take it from me. Geopolitical analyst Brandon Weikert supplied a nifty summary January 17th over at Asia Times. Title, America's Strategy of Failure Comes to Ukraine. Sample quote, Washington's ruling class has blundered for decades at the strategic level. With each foreign policy disaster, America's overall standing atop the world system has declined until it has reached its current nadir. End quote. 
Weikert walks us through all the familiar U.S. strategic catastrophes of this century. Afghanistan. We deposed the Taliban and chased out al-Qaeda in just a few weeks to the end of 2001. Then we hung around for 20 more years, spending trillions of dollars and losing thousands of soldiers in order to... what? I kept asking, but no one could tell me. At last we just gave up. Now the Taliban are back in charge. Iraq. We deposed the regime, even though they hadn't been doing the naughty things we'd been told we were going in to stop them doing. Then we stayed on for eight years doing counterinsurgency to stop Iran controlling the place. Trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, and we left. Now Iran controls the place. Libya. The Arab Spring of 2011 started off a civil war in Libya. In spite of Libya being nowhere near the North Atlantic, NATO chose a side in the war and bombed the Bejesus out of the other side. The nation fell into chaos and stayed there. Muammar Gaddafi, who was a nasty piece of work, but whose cooperation could be bought with cold cash, Gaddafi was killed. Too much cackling from Mrs. Clinton. Don't even ask me about Syria. I've given up trying to figure out what we're doing there. A strategy of failure indeed. What explains it? We are a nation of a third of a billion people. Our population, of course, includes many thousands of first-class minds, well-informed in history and public affairs, certainly capable of tackling and solving difficult problems. Why does our geopolitical strategy look like the product of a cage full of chimps on crack? And now, Ukraine. What business do we have in Ukraine? None at all, actually. Or rather, we do have business there because we're in NATO, and NATO has business. That, too, however, is just a consequence of our strategic imbecility. When the Cold War ended, we should have pulled out of NATO, brought home our troops, encouraged the Europeans to carry on practising collective defence while doing all they could to improve relations with Russia, and wished everyone over there a merry good night. Was that really so hard to see? Instead, we're being dragged into a war that's none of our business. No, that's not even right. It's us who are doing the dragging, pressing the Ukrainians to push forward, to overthrow Putin and humiliate, to break up, if possible, the Russian Federation. How did we generate so much strategic stupidity over so many years? Brandon Weikert blames ideology 
and I think he has a point. Back when we talked about economic issues more than we do now, there was a saying you heard that politics is the enemy of economics. Whatever may be the case with politics and economics, it seems clear that ideology is the enemy of strategy. Ideology is fired by passion. Strategy is fired by reason. America's ruling class has for 30 years been in the grip of a wild ideology, totally at odds with reality at every point. Unfortunately for us, reality has a way of winning these contests sooner or later. So, what is this ideology? Well, it's the one we call neoconservatism. What's that? Neoconservatism is, of course, a style of conservatism, inspired, as all conservatism is, by the preference declared most pithily by the third Duke of Norfolk 500 years ago. Quote, I would all things were as hath been in times past. End quote. The times past that our neoconservatives hanker for were the Cold War years, when geopolitics was simpler and the map of the world was crossed by clear lines of moral distinction with us on the good side of every line. Take that hankering, season it with a dash of Jewish paranoia, and you have neoconservatism. Today, in 2023, neoconservatism is, of course, seriously detached from reality. Here's a quote that returned an echo from my bosom. Quote, I continue to be fascinated with how people perceive reality and the process by which they either finally change their minds when faced with something that strongly challenges those perceptions, or they rationalise their reluctance to do so and retain their former beliefs. End quote. I took that from a January 17th post at a blog titled thenewneo.com. It's a good old-fashioned blog, an intelligent and opinionated citizen sounding off on topics of the moment, with a comment thread from which lunatics have been purged. The blog is run by a lady who prefers to remain anonymous. She refers to herself just as Neo. Title of the blog post, The Imaginary Biden versus the Real One. Mona Charon's Dilemma. Mona Charon is a long-time neocon opinionator. Neo is commenting on a column that Ms. Charon published at Time magazine, January 14th. Title of that column? We elected Biden to be better than this. 
So, this is me passing comment on Neo passing comment on a column by Mona Charon. Got it? By all means, feel free to send in comments on what I am saying here. Let's see if we can get some third-order commentary going. I should say that I have some slight acquaintance with Mona Charon, and in fact I owe her a large favour. We don't agree about much in the area of public policy, but I have never heard anything ill of her, and I speak of her here with courtesy and respect. The gist of Mona Charon's column is that she's sinking into BDS, which is to say Biden Disappointment Syndrome. She closes her column with reference to Biden's shucking and jiving around the classified documents issue. Thus, quote, That is demoralizing for those who believe that Biden's chief accomplishment and purpose as president has been to restore a modicum of trust to a nation that has been sunk in suspicion and bitterness for too long. Being not Trump demands better. End quote. Well, Neo does a wonderful job of tossing and goring Ms. Charon's column. Her January 17th blog post is a little gem of the vituperative arts. She marvels at the fact that anyone who's been following Joe Biden for the last 50 years could be at a point where disappointment is possible. Joe has been firmly established for decades in the minds of everyone who follows our national politics as, to quote Neo, a mendacious mediocrity at best. I can remember journalists and DC insiders chuckling over what a dim-witted doofus the guy was back in the 1988 presidential campaign. Biden dropped out of that campaign after multiple charges of making up his resume and plagiarising other politicians' speeches. That was 35 years ago. As Neo says, it all comes down to one's engagement with reality. When driven by ideology, a person can believe anything, even that Joe Biden is a capable statesman. I repeat, neoconservatism today is seriously detached from reality. Just a supplementary word about the Jewish component in neo-connery, since I made passing mention of it in the previous segment. Mona Charon is Jewish. So is Bill Crystal, her male counterpart. So are many of the other neocons running our nation's bizarre geostrategy. People like Victoria Newland. What's up with that? Seeking inspiration, I turned to the Old Testament. In there among the wisdom books of the OT, there is, of course, 
the book of Psalms. 150 prayers and hymns were written down in the early 1st millennium BC, many of them composed by King David. They show the faithful how to thank God for his blessings, how to praise his goodness and power, and how to ask him for help. That's all good nourishing stuff. Basic religion. King David was, however, as well as being a religious leader, he was a king in charge of his nation's geostrategy. So, in among the blessings, praises and appeals, there is mixed a certain amount of statecraft. It shows up most vividly in what scholars call the imprecatory psalms. The dictionary defines imprecation as curse or malediction. So these psalms are wishing ill on someone. Definitely a component of statecraft. Some of them are seriously mean. Listen to what Psalm 137 wishes on the Edomites. Quote from the King James Version. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. End quote. Nice. Possibly I'm being fanciful, but in the book of Psalms, with high morality and assertions of divine favour mixed up with savage imprecations against enemies, I think I see the ancient early shadow of neoconservatism. The strong Jewish influence in our nation's geostrategy has the same cause as that same influence in other areas requiring high mental and especially verbal ability, writing, lawyering and so on. The cause is simply that Ashkenazi Jews have much higher average IQ than the rest of us. This may not go on being the case. Jews are marrying out, diluting the gene pool. Outside the ultra-Orthodox communities, fertility levels are low. No new supplies are coming in from the old Ashkenazi heartlands of Eastern Europe. Israel has a much nicer climate. And we've been settling high IQ immigrants from elsewhere, from Africa, China, India, in defiance of all my warnings about importing an overclass. Indians seem to do particularly well in the verbal and political professions. That's true all over. Britain has an Indian Prime Minister. Ireland has had one for years. We ourselves have a half-Indian Vice President. For clues as to mid-21st century US geostrategy, Perhaps I should start looking into the Bhagavad Gita.
And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Ronna McDaniel is the chairperson of the Republican National Committee. That's the body that organises fundraising, plans electoral strategy and manages the Republican National Convention every four years. She is a Mormon. In fact, she's a niece of Mitt Romney, which may go some way to explaining why the GOP is a bag of wet sand. I am mildly annoyed that Mrs McDaniel isn't Jewish. If she were, I would have a nifty example to follow on from my previous segment with an example of smart Indians challenging Jews for behind-the-scenes political power. All right, I'll go with what I've got. Friday last, January 27th, there was an election for the RNC chair. These elections go every two years in January. Mrs McDaniel has won the last three, and on Friday she was up for election to her fourth term. A lot of Republicans are not happy with her, and it's not hard to see why. Planning election strategy? How'd that work out in the midterms last November? If Mrs McDaniel is no good at helping her party win elections, though, she's real good at what GOP Congress critters like best. Schmoozing with big money donors at events organised by the RNC. So much more fun than that tiresome business of legislating and EU electioneering. Friday, however, she faced a serious challenge from Harmeet Dillon, an Indian-American. Her family are actually Sikhs. In the event, Mrs McDaniel won re-election on a vote of 111 to 51. That's roughly 2 to 1, and that's probably a fair measure of how the establishment GOP currently breaks. Two-thirds, Romneyoid, go-along, get-along, do-nothings. One-third, taking inspiration from the party grassroots. A feature of the vote noted by the Los Angeles Times was that Donald Trump and his advisers were all urging support for Mrs McDaniel, while Ron DeSantis, on the Charlie Kirk show the night before the vote, came out for Ms. Dillon, or at any rate for, quote, new blood. This could get interesting. Item, and just in case you were thinking that the congressional GOP might perhaps take some action on the invasion across our southern border, go back to your crossword puzzle. Here's the nub of the matter from the January 23rd Washington Post. Quote, The border security bill introduced by Representative Chip Roy, 
Republican of Texas, and co-sponsored by 58 Republicans, would empower the Homeland Security Secretary, currently Alejandro Mayorkas, to unilaterally bar all undocumented migrants from entering the United States through any point of entry if the Secretary deems it necessary to re-establish operational control of the border. If immigration agencies cannot, for any reason, process undocumented migrants, according to legal procedures, a similar response by the Secretary would be required. If the Secretary does not follow through, the bill would provide State Attorneys General the authority to sue the federal government. End quote. Now that sounds to me like a good, sensible bit of legislation. Senate Democrats would crush it, of course, but at least the GOP would have put a marker out there. Forget about it. The bill was thwarted by moderate Republicans in the House, perhaps responding to a three-line whip from the Romney family. One of the thwarters, Representative Tony Gonzalez of Texas, expressed his opposition thus, quote, We can't allow the Republican Party to be hijacked trying to ban legitimate asylum claims? One, it's not Christian, and two, to me, it's very anti-American. So a lot is at stake, end quote. Yeah, right. While leaving the border wide open and increasing numbers of illegal aliens by two million a year, there is nothing at stake there, nothing at all. Remind me, please, the point of voting Republican is what? Item. Among the week's other headliners was the beating of young black man Tyre Nichols by five black Memphis police officers. The beating left Mr Nichols unconscious. He died from his injuries three days later. It was all caught on video, of course. What isn't nowadays? The fact of everyone involved being black was vexing to the anti-whites, although they did the best they could with it. Al Sharpton, speaking at Nichols' funeral, said, quote, I believe that if that man had been white, you wouldn't have beaten him like that that night. End quote. Nice try, Reverend Al, but no cigar. What do I make of it? The phrase that comes to mind is collapse of standards. This is all part of the poisonous legacy of the evil and unconstitutional Civil Rights Act of 1964, in particular of its demon spawn, the doctrine of disparate impact. For the physically and mentally challenging work done by police, firefighters and the like, you need good strict selection standards. 
The only way to get them is to put applicants through tests of fitness, intelligence, and character. As I wrote back in 2009, when the Supreme Court was hearing Richie v. De Stefano, quote, "The unhappy fact is that different ethnic groups exhibit different profiles of results on tests." Attempts to devise a test on which this does not happen have all failed across decades of effort, criticism, and analysis. End quote. Faced with that unhappy fact, authorities nationwide have given up on objective testing, and they just hire by race quota. In the case of cops. The anti-police movement has only made things worse. Who wants to be the next Derek Chauvin? Forces are having trouble recruiting, and they take what they can get. Mature, experienced cops are retiring. All this is happening while progressive legislators and DAs are loosening the bail laws and emptying the jails. We're going to see a lot more of what we saw in Memphis. That's it, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention, for your comments and donations, and for your many, many heartwarming expressions of sympathy and hopes for a fast recovery. I am now home. My spirits are high. My gallbladder has been consigned to the incinerator, and I shall soon be back to my fighting weight. For sign-off music, something off the beaten track. My own approach to news about our society and culture is to try to personalize it a little. When pondering a news item of this kind. I try to relate it to some particular human being. The person I pick on is hardly ever someone of my own acquaintance. Most often, it's a figure from history or literature. I like to think that clothing a story in some familiar human flesh like this gives me extra perspective on what's happening. That may be an illusion, but it gives me a kind of assurance. Illusions can be handy. So let's consider the current fad for surgically altering children who say they want to be the other sex. Who do I personalize that with? With Alessandro Moreschi, that's who. There should probably be whoms in place of those whos. But the heck with it. Serious music buffs will know where we are here. For other listeners, let me explain that Alessandro Moreschi was a castrato. Prior to puberty, he had a very beautiful little boy's voice, and he loved to sing. So they cut off his testicles, and his voice remained that way into his adult life. This was common practice all over Europe from the 16th to the 19th centuries, especially in Italy and the Papal States. 
It sounds cruel, but it wasn't a bad deal in the harsh pre-modern world. If you made it into a cathedral choir and kept your little boy voice, which not all castrati did, you had a life that was comfortable and respectable, with, at any rate in the later years, a pension when you retired. It beat shoveling cow poop on a farm or being a domestic servant. Anne Rice wrote a rather good novel about the lives of Castrati, titled Cry to Heaven. Alessandro Moreschi was one of the last of the Castrati. He died in 1922, just over a hundred years ago, and he wasn't very old, only 63. His fame arises from the fact that he lived into the age of sound recording. Other Castrati did too, but I think Moreschi was the only one to make solo voice recordings. Here is the most famous one, recorded in either 1902 or 1904, when Moreschi was in his mid-forties. It's the Ave Maria of Johann Sebastian Bach and Charles Gounod. There will be more from Radio Derb next week.